right, guys. Good to be with you again, two out of three weeks. Um, my name is Drew Stevenson. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the lead pastor of Salt City Church. You know. Oh, come uh, on, guys. Um, anyway, anyway, has anyone been watching the Masters at all? So, yeah, that's kind of the... I knew this was a risk, talking about the Masters, right? Most people are like, how boring is that? Well, I'm kind of going to make fun of it a little bit, so maybe you'll like this. But I watched this video today online about the champion's dinner that they have before the Masters. And for those of you who don't know, the Masters is the biggest golf tournament that happens each year. And basically, they have this dinner before the Masters every year where everyone who has ever won the Masters comes and they wear their green jacket to the dinner. So if you're not familiar with the Masters of all, you're probably familiar with the green jacket. And so in this video, they were talking about how the champion's dinner is the most exclusive club on earth. Right? And there's this picture of all of the past Masters champions wearing their green jacket. And as I was watching this video and thinking about Romans 9, 10, and 11, I was kind of laughing to myself. Because if you think about it, it's kind of ridiculous that there's all these grown men who are super proud that they can hit a little white ball around and make it in a hole. And so they put these green jackets on and they feel really important, right? And then I began to think, this is really how the world works, right? You accomplish these things in this area of expertise, and you sort of work your whole life to be successful so that other people can approve of you or can pat you on the back. And so we try to find our validation through our success. And so each and every one of us in different ways are trying to get our own green jacket so that we can be with other people with green jackets and we can feel great. Here's the problem we run into when we start reading the Bible and taking it seriously, is that we realize that Christianity is not a country club that you enter through your spiritual success. Christianity is more like a homeless shelter that you get into because you need a lot of help. And there's no passage in Scripture that I think illustrates how needy and desperate we are than these three chapters of the Bible. So basically what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at four experiences that you will have as a Christian, when you begin to understand that you're not saved by your own success, but you're saved by God's grace. Okay, so you ready? Let's take these one at a time. Remember, at any point during the message, you can text in. The number will be on the screens. Okay, so the first experience that you'll have when you begin to understand God's grace is the anguish of love. We're in Romans chapter 9, starting just with verses 1 through 3. The anguish of love. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, 
I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So here's Paul's argument in this passage of Scripture. First of all, just a little background, you have to understand, Paul is a Jew. Paul was walking along a road to Damascus to go kill Christians when Jesus showed up to him and said, why are you persecuting me? And from that moment on, Paul understood that you're not saved by your success, but you're saved by God's grace. And so the question keeps coming up, why in every town that you go to, Paul, are the Jews not the ones being saved? Aren't the Jews God's chosen people? Why instead, when you go to these small towns on your missionary journeys, why are the Gentiles primarily the ones being saved? So that's the question that Paul's answering in these chapters that we're going to be looking at. But before he gets to the main flow of his argument, he wants you to know the love that he has for his kinsmen according to the flesh. In other words, fellow Jews. And he says, telling you the truth, I'm not lying. My conscience says the same thing and the Holy Spirit says the same thing. And that's sort of four links in a chain that are getting you to the jewel, which is his primary argument. And he says, here's why I'm backing all of this up. Because it's actually true that I would go to hell if I could save all the Jews by doing so. And just think about that. That is insane love. Like, it's possible to say that, right? I would rather that I would go to hell than my friend would go to hell. I would rather be cut off from my relationship with Christ so that my friend could have a relationship with Christ. But then you would walk away and you would know that you were speaking in hyperbole, right? You'd be like, if push came to shove, I actually wouldn't go that far. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is, God's grace has so totally rocked my life, has so totally changed me. I understand so deeply that I am saved purely by what God has done and not by anything that I have done, that I would actually cut myself off from eternal life in order to see the Jews experience eternal life. 
you might think, okay, so Paul's a real deep feeler. Right? He's got really strong feelings. Like he really, really, really believes this. But what's crazy is we actually see him living this out in his life. Let me give you one example. Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 20. This is when Paul enters a city called Lystra. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. This is an example of this deep anguish that Paul has for the Jewish people, not just being a feeling that he has, but being a verb that he lives out. He goes into a city called Lystra. He preaches the gospel to them. He shares the message of Jesus with them. They stone him, drag him outside of the city. They think he's dead. He's taken care of. He's not dead. Stands back up, walks back into the city, and starts preaching the gospel to them again. And the people that he's preaching the gospel to are the Jews. Question. Do you have that kind of love for your enemies? For people who hate you, for people who mistreat you, for people who make fun of you for being a Christian. Because one of the evidences that you really understand the gravity of what it means to be saved is that you love other people with this kind of reckless abandon, with no regard for your own life. I think for you guys, this looks like small decisions each day to put other people first rather than just doing what you want to do. You're not just going to arrive in this place one day. It takes intentional, habit-forming decisions like when the dishes are in the sink, you choose to wash them, those type of things. Okay, so what exactly was it in Paul's belief system that led him to live this way? First thing, the mercy of God. He had experienced the mercy of God. And this is where things are going to get a little bit dicey for you, and you might get your world rocked a little bit. So Romans 9, 18 through 21, this is his understanding of God's mercy. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So remember, again, the question is, okay, Paul, why when you go into these towns, and you preach the gospel there, 
why are there a few Jews who believe, there's lots of Jews who don't believe, and there's some Gentiles who believe, and there's some Gentiles who don't believe? What is the ultimate reason that some people believe in Jesus and some people don't? You could have the same question. Why is it that some people who you grew up with in church don't believe in Jesus and you do believe in Jesus even though you went to the same church services? Or maybe you came to Salt Company with a friend one time and you walked away and you heard the same message as them and you believed in Jesus and it totally changed their life, your life, and it didn't seem to move them at all. It gets to be a really personal question, right? Like we're not talking about theory or theology or something out there right now. We're talking about something that matters for us. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. The reason is, God has mercy on whomever he wills. The ultimate reason that you are saved, if you are saved, is the sheer mercy of God. The first cause of your salvation is God's completely unmerited grace. When did he decide who's in? Ephesians chapter 1 says before the foundation of the world. God predestined you for adoption as his kids. Which you understand clearly what I'm saying brings a lot of questions into your heart and in your mind. And probably the primary question you're asking is the same question that the text anticipates that you'll ask, right? Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Isn't that the logical next question? If God chooses beforehand who gets saved, the logical question is, why does he hold us responsible? Why does he still find fault with people if he created them that way? And Paul's answer is very unsatisfactory, but a good one. He says, Think of a conversation between a potter and a pot. Is it appropriate if a potter makes a pot for the pot to say to the potter, why did you make me this way? I don't know about you. I haven't made much pottery in my life. I think the last time I made pottery was uh, in fifth grade, in art class. Do you remember this whole thing? Like, make a little bowl or something like that and kind of put it in the kiln, and then you put some glaze on it or whatever. I mean, can you imagine this scenario, right? You're in art class. You're making a pot. You decide to make a bowl. You could either make a bowl or a cup. Make a bowl and uh, put some glaze on it. It's all dried out. You come back the next day. 
no one else is in the room. You go to pick up your bowl, about to grab it, and the bowl says to you, why didn't you make me a cup? What would you do? Your bowl. Why are you talking to me? You might just pick up the bowl, throw it up against the wall. How dare you talk to me? You're a bowl. I'm a human being. I'm a man. You're a bowl. Here's what Paul's saying. There's an infinitely bigger gap between you and God than between you and a bowl. I mean, God says really crazy things in the Bible. Isaac referenced one earlier. In the book of Isaiah, he says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways are higher than your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my thoughts and my ways above your thoughts and ways. God's answer to your question, why does he still find fault, is who do you think you are? You're going to have a conversation with God? Your maker can do with you whatever he wants. And here's the astounding thing. He chose to save you. What? He chose to give his son in your place for your sin. He chose to say, my life for yours. He chose to put himself on the line for you. Which then starts to beg the question, like, all of you who, like, memorized John 3.16 back in the day, you're like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Does this thing, like, does this throw out John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but will have eternal life. If God choose, chose beforehand, then doesn't that mean we don't really have to believe in him. But just a chapter later, what Paul says is the experience that someone who has understood grace has next is they understand the simplicity of belief. Okay, you might be familiar with this verse as well. Romans 10 verse 9, pretty famous verse, great verse. If somebody is not a believer in Jesus, to explain to them how to become a believer in Jesus. You might want to write this down if you're looking to share the message of Jesus with someone in your dorm or somebody that you work with. Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is Paul taking crazy pills? Wait. Okay. God has mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy on. He hardens whomever he wants to harden. Don't talk back. He's in charge. And then you ask him the question, how do you get saved? He says, it's really easy. You confess and you believe. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Which means, I'm not the boss of my life anymore. I understand what it looks like to be the boss of my own life. And when I try to be the boss of my own life, I wreck my life. Jesus is a better king than I am. And he knows better what the good life is all about than I do. So I'm going to give him the keys to my life. And I'm going to say, 
It's all yours. I'm going to confess. Jesus is Lord. And then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I think that statement, God raised him from the dead, is pregnant. It's talking about his perfect life, his death for you on the cross, and the historical fact that he is not dead anymore. You can't go visit his tomb. He is alive. And he's changing people's lives. And so if you simply confess and believe, you're saved. You're starting to be like, okay, this math isn't adding up. Which is it? You confess and believe and you're saved, or God chooses whoever he wants to. Now here's where you have to trust. Because this is like an unsolvable sum of math. If you try to figure this out, you're going to drive yourself absolutely nuts. Okay, my daughter, Emma, has an intellectual disability. And on a regular basis, I do math with her. And because of how her brain's wired, she's unable to do very simple math problems. And so often, I'm sitting there doing math problems with her, and we've done some very simple ones, and we get to one that's a little bit harder, and I know that she just can't do it. She's not able to do it. So I'll just say to Emma, 12 plus 6, it's 18. Just write down 18, sweetie. She's just like, okay. You're good, Dad. You love me. She gets excited when I tell her the answer because she didn't have to think. Oh, 18. All right. Great. You know, this whole Bible doesn't make sense at all if you don't just trust God like that. Like, if you start thinking about anything in the Bible hard enough, it won't make any sense to you. It's kind of like when you repeat the same word over and over again, like if you say, syrup. 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 You guys ever do this? It's like, syrup. Syrup is a syrupy word. Syrup, syrup. Like, you read anything in the Bible, it's like, why do I have to believe in Jesus? What confess with your mouth? Like, what does that mean? Like, do I have to yell it? Do I have to say it to a group of people? Believe in my heart? Like, heart, what does that mean? Like, is that a feeling? Is that an experience? And you can just overthink this whole thing. But what the whole Bible is pointing you toward is not complete understanding. Not complete understanding. It's trust. The question you have to ask yourself is, can I trust the person who wrote the Bible? Can I trust God? And one of the evidences that you can trust him is that what he says is way over your head. Wouldn't you expect, if God authored a book, that there would be parts of it that would be hard for you to understand? If you read a book that claimed to be written by God, and it was really easy for you to understand, wouldn't you question whether it was really written by God? Okay. Belief is super simple. Just take God at his word. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God has raised him from the dead. And then you finally get to the place where Paul got. And that's to the place of worship. 
And what creates worship in your heart is the mystery of heaven. Listen to Paul exclaim this. As he doesn't try to solve the sum of math on his own, but he just holds these two things in tension. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. He hardens whomever he hardens. And confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. When you hold those things in tension, you don't try to solve the unsolvable math. You just believe it. It leads you to this place. Romans chapter 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. See what Paul's saying? He wrote this. If anyone understood Romans 9, 10, and 11, it was the Apostle Paul. And he gets to the end of this section, and he basically writes a song. God is amazing. I don't understand this thing. It absolutely blows my mind. The depth of the wisdom, knowledge of God. In another version, it says, his ways are beyond tracing out. And instead of trying to solve the unsolvable sum of math, Paul holds these things in tension, and he invites us all to do the same thing and to stand in awe of this God who is absolutely in a class by himself. And here's the conclusion you come to as you do that, you understand what Paul says here. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. You begin to understand that your salvation is not something that you earned at all. It is an absolutely free gift that the only reason that you're saved is because God has had mercy on you. He put the confession in your mouth. He put the belief in your heart. And you can't take any credit for it. All you can do is say thank you. All you can do is be grateful because you understand that your salvation and every talent and every ability and every ounce of money that you have, everything that you have is a gift from God. And because you trust him, you're not mad at him anymore. You're just thankful to him. You're like my son Gabe was last night. So you guys know my son Jude had his second open heart surgery yesterday. He's eight weeks old, fifth surgery that he's had. It's been absolutely brutal. And we kind of had this funny moment last night. I called my mom. And she had sent me a text to ask me if I was on my way home. And I was kind of curious because I'm like, why are you asking me if I'm on my way home? That's not like my mom because I was with my son Jude who just had surgery. She's like, well, your son Gabe just fell off the couch and split his head open. And so he's going to need some staples in the back of his head. And so 
you know, my wife and I looked at each other, just kind of, you just got to laugh at that point, right? Like, when it rains, it pours, you know? And so we get in the van and we drive to the emergency room from the hospital where my son's had surgery. And my wife drops me off the emergency room. And just as we're pulling up the emergency room, my mom is walking in with my, my son Gabe into the emergency room. And so I jump out and he's got his, his PJs on with boots and his coat and he's got his hood up. And I learn later, the reason he got his hood up is to catch the blood. And you know, he's got the hood up and then pull the hood down and he's got like blood soaking all over the back of his PJs on his shirt, right? And we walk into the, the hospital and right as we're walking in, there's just a perfectly placed vending machine, right? I'm like, hey buddy, you know, my son's two. I'm like, you want some candy? He's like, yeah, you know, gets all pumped up. And so I go buy him a pack of Skittles. And we walk up and we check him in the emergency room. We go sit down and, and I open up the pack of Skittles. And it's just such a delight as a dad to give your kids Skittles when he's about to get staples in his head, you know? And he's just like, can I have some Skittles? And he's like holding out his hand and I just dump a bunch of Skittles in his hand. And he just looks up at me like, this is the best day ever. Like, thanks, Dad. And then he starts eating the Skittles, and he's just enjoying the Skittles so much. And he's like, hey, Dad, you want some Skittles? You know, yeah, buddy. You know, I ate some Skittles. And then my mom's sitting over here, and he's like, Grandma, you want some Skittles? My mom, yeah, I'll take some Skittles. And it's just like the sweetest thing in the world, right? But here's the thing. Gabe completely trusts me. Like, he didn't have to have the answer to the question, like, why are we at this crazy hospital at 9 o'clock at night? Why do I have this big cut on my head? What's going to happen next? He just trusts me. It's like, Dad loves me. He bought me Skittles. I'm going to say thank you. And when you have this trust relationship with God even with really hard things, even when you're about to get staples in your head, you can say thanks for the Skittles. You can say thanks for life and breath and everything else. And when you get saved, everything else sort of goes to the backdrop. You begin to understand that your eternal destiny has been secured, not because of anything that you've done, but only because of what God has done. And it begins to produce in you a love for everyone around you that is absolutely contagious. Don't you want that? In order to have that, we have to be willing to think beyond the surface and to wrestle with these things. And so let me pray. And then I want you guys, if you got questions, we got a couple like primer questions that maybe would be the few biggest questions. But if you think of other questions, really, I'd love to just sit here with you guys and have a conversation to answer those questions. So let's pray as Isaac comes up and then have a little Q&A time. Jesus, thank you for your unfathomable grace and um, we don't understand but we do um, 
even in this moment, worship you. We want to say thank you that instead of just taking all of us, the clay pots of the world, and um, destroying us, you have molded us and fashioned us um, for your glory to honor you. And we just want to keep saying yes to you with our lives and um, understand what you've revealed to us about your character. So help us to do that. Give us wisdom during this Q&A. In Jesus' name, amen.